Well, uh, as I promised last week, um, and by the way, I, this is so super exciting, but just in case you wonder, I've, I set my Bible in to be rebound, and so now I've got a loaner Bible. And so, you know, like when you take your car to the shop, and uh, I took my Bible to the shop, and so now I've got my, my loaner Bible with me. But as I've been uh, promising, is that we're going to be spending the next few weeks on this idea of grace. Now, grace is one of these things where, where when we come to faith, we go, yeah, like we, we need grace. We need grace. Grace is so important. But along the journey somewhere, we, we let it go. And so uh, in, in our journey together, actually one of the things that we've done is, is that uh, we have gone out and we've purchased these books called Unlimited Grace. And, uh, and they're actually for purchase. They're actually they're cheaper than you can buy them anywhere. They're $10, uh, but you can buy those at the info table. And uh, one of the things I was really thinking about this last time I was up in class was as I would like to bring things back to you from class. Like I was up at class, did some reading, did some things I think would be helpful for you. There's a lot of the reading that I do that probably wouldn't be super helpful for you, uh, but this is one of the ones that I think was. And so Brian Chappell was the professor that I had up in Portland, a fantastic, God-honoring, gospel-loving man of God. And so he wrote this book called Unlimited Grace, and, um, and, and, and this is, even when I was reading this through, I was like, this is good. There's some things I've forgotten in this. And, uh, and so these are for you. Um, you can pick those up. Those are, I said, $10 at the uh, info table. But just kind of get, get, grab it as a couple, read it. I think it would be great. And so one of the things about grace, I think, is this hard place is that what happens is we come to faith, and we know, as we're going to see in the passage this morning, we are saved by grace. It's not by works. And yet somewhere along the road, we just, we, we let it go. And I think that we forget what grace is. I think that it, we forget that it's being extended to us. And I think often as a Christian, what we think is that grace is for our past. There's some things that I did in my past, not so good, not so proud of. And the grace of God has covered those. Amen. Hallelujah. But then we don't tend to to experience and to know and to trust grace in our present. And less than that, we, we don't even see the idea of grace in the future. Like all we do is we look back and go, oh, it's, it's grace over my past. Amen. Hallelujah. But we never see grace in the moment or in the future. And interestingly enough is that I think that the, the longer you're a Christian, the more that you will struggle with this idea of grace. At least that's been my, my experience. And this is actually, even as we embark on this, this few weeks with grace, is that this actually might be a theological idea that those who are newer in the faith get better than those who have been in the faith for a while. In fact, actually, it might even be like if you grew up in a Christian home, I find that those who grow up in Christian homes have a really hard time with grace. Because everything's about performance. How do I do? How do I act? Did I do the right thing? Did I hold to the Ten Commandments? And so we, we, we even like sometimes are raised in these what are called grace households, Christian, Christian households, but yet we are, we are living by, by these, these, these rules and these regulations that I think as we're going to get like, like works, works do have a place and works do matter, but, but we're, we're not saved by them. We're saved by, by grace and as the proclamation is by grace and grace alone. Grace is one of those interesting words, I think, is because it gets thrown around a lot. Right, we just we can throw it around. Just oh, it's it's like grace. It sounds really good. I mean, it's a, we, as we sang, it's a, we know that it's amazing. 
And so maybe when you pray, you might even pray that God's grace would be on somebody. And you go, that sounds good. Or maybe somebody prayed over you that God's grace would be upon you. May the grace of the Lord be upon you. You're like, yes. And you go, but what does that mean? You go, I don't know, but it sounds really good. Especially when you throw it together with mercy, right? Grace and all, grace and mercy. Oh, man, now we're talking. May, may May the grace and mercy of God be upon you. Great, what does that mean? I don't know, but it sounds really good in prayer. Interesting thing is, like, I think mercy and grace, they are, they, they, they go together. Mercy is this idea that we don't get what's, owed, like, what's due to us. As it, as it tells us in the scriptures is that, is that it tells us that, that justice and judgment and the wrath of God is to be, like, as rightfully so, should be upon us. But because of the mercy of God, it is, it is not for those who are in Christ. That's the mercy. Like we were owed, we are owed, uh, basically we, by our own works, we got uh, the, the justice and the wrath of God. But by God's mercy, he says, I'm not going to give you that. I'm going to withhold that from you. And then grace then is extending to us that which we don't deserve at all, the goodness of God. So mercy withholds the wrath of God. And then grace extends to us the righteousness of God. We don't get that which we should get, and we get that which we could never ever earn or even even be entitled to or owed. And that's why the two go together. That's why it's so, I mean, because God could just extend to us his mercy. Go, you know, I'm not going to give you my wrath, but at the same time, I'm not going to give you my righteousness. Who's going to do that? So God actually could withhold his, withhold his, his grace and, and his righteousness and just, just say, well, I'm not going to give you the, the, the wrath, and so I'm going to give you mercy, but I'm not going to give you grace. And what the scriptures tell us is that God is, is generous and rich in both his grace and his mercy. And so as we embark on this, I'm going to, I'm going to encourage you as a Christian for those that are not Christians, I want to encourage you to really wrestle with this idea, what makes you right before the eyes of God? And if you are a Christian, I want you to wrestle with this idea, what really truly makes you right before the eyes of God? If you've got your text, we're going to jump into one of the most famous passages about grace, and that's going to be in Ephesians chapter, chapter 2. So if you've got your Bibles, turn there with me. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Let me read that again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of of mankind. Well, aren't you glad you came to church this morning? You were dead in your sins, disobedient, like all the children of wrath. 
That's, I, that's, you say that, that's, who you, if, that's who you were. And it's interesting because it's, it's not popular to talk about people being spiritually dead. There's a lot in, right now that says that, uh, that Western culture, America included in that, is becoming uh, more spiritual, just less Christian. And so even now, actually, it's, it's more offensive and probably increasingly so to say, actually, what the Scriptures teach is that you are spiritually dead. It's actually much more common to say things like, well, they're spiritually lost. I was lost. I was spiritually confused. To which I think, yeah, there, there's some truth to that. Like this idea, like I was, I was spiritually lost. Like, you know, you know that I, 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 just like, I was on a journey. I was on a spiritual journey. I was just on the wrong road. And then what Jesus came and did is he put me on the right road. So I was on this journey, the spiritual journey. And what, what happened was is that, that Christ came and took me and put me on the right journey. In which I would say, if that's you, there is some truth to that. Or this idea of confused. I'm just spiritually confused. Right now we live in a, in, a, in a world that has presented to us a religious buffet of ideas. And so we just go to the buffet. I like that. I like that. I'm going to take this. And if, we, if this is all that we ever do, we only get of God of our own choosing. And ultimately what happens is we end up spiritually confused. And people may say, well, I was spiritually confused. And then what Jesus did was Jesus came and brought clarity to me. Which I would say there is some truth to that. But the scriptures say that the problem is much, much worse. Not just that you were spiritually confused or that you were spiritually lost, but you were spiritually dead. That's the death that we looked at Adam and Eve. That's the death that happened in Genesis chapter 3. When God said, of the day that you eat of that fruit, you're going to die. They didn't physically die. Death set in, but they didn't physically die. But in that moment, they spiritually died. And so, in this place, the, the scriptures say that you're spiritually dead. And there, there, it, by the way, the way that we talk about this, it matters. Because does it really matter if we go, can't, can't we just say lost or confused? Do we really have to say dead? And I go, yes. You know why? Because words do matter. And the way that we talk about things matter. I mean, I think about, like, you know, I've, I've been lost before. Been lost. I was on the Camino, walked, you know, you know six, seven hundred miles, whatever it was. Got lost a couple times. Somebody gave me directions. I was thankful. I've been confused before. I don't get this in class or, you know, you take a math class or, you know, somebody, I'm confused. I don't get, how do these things work together? And then either a student, another student, or your professor comes along, a tutor comes along and says, and they work with you. And what they do is they help bring clarity to the understanding. And you go, oh, now that makes sense. For which you're appreciative. But I'm just going to, by the way, submit the obvious to you that there's a different sort of appreciation that you have for somebody who gives you directions, who brings clarity or who gives you life. This last week, I, I went to UC Davis, the medical center, to, 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 to pay a visit. And the place is like a maze. 
And they're like, oh, you need to go to Tower 2, but not the Davis Tower. Like, Davis, like I'm like, I'm just, so I'm like, I'm walking through. I don't know. There's no real, like, like, numbers anywhere. I'm just, I'm lost. And I'm looking at these doctors, and I'm thinking these doctors probably know where I need to go. These doctors could help me, like, they could tell me where I should go. And I also thought, as I was preparing for this message, I go, and to which I would be thankful, but these doctors in here are helping save people's lives to which I would submit that they are forever thankful. See, I would be thankful for these doctors just to give me directions, but these doctors in these other places are giving life, are saving life. And I go, and I'm, I'm going to submit that there's this difference there. And so it's not popular for us to talk about being dead, spiritually dead, but that's what the scriptures say. And I think there's a couple of reasons why, I think there's multiple reasons, two of which I want to highlight this morning, but there's a couple of reasons why we don't, like in our culture today, that we don't think that, that, that uh, speaking about being physically, or sorry, spiritually dead is a popular thing. One is that in our secular culture, which is what is our culture is right now, secularism, some would say post-secularism, but secularism is that one is that there's this idea that essentially we're all good at our core, Right? There's this belief within secularism in our culture that says at our core, we're all really good spiritual people. And what needs to happen is that if we're given enough freedom, and this is economic freedom, social freedom, religious freedom, political freedom. If we give humanity enough freedom, then the goodness that is already inside of them will just naturally blossom. Like a tulip in April. And I go, we are the most free country in the history of the world. And I go, do we just see the goodness blossoming? Just coming beautifully to the surface, effortlessly. And so one of the reasons I think that there's this this tension between Christianity and our culture right now is because at, at the base we're saying something dramatically different. At our at our base we're saying that. That one is saying that humanity is good and, 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 and right and, and pure at its core. The other is saying, Christianity is saying, no, at our core, like, have you, I, I don't know, I, I, have you seen your inside? Like, have you looked inside your soul? It's a dark place full of bitterness and rage, at times depression, despair, pride, greed. And where I think we would love to look at humanity and go, yeah, I, I think at our core we're good. We, when I, would, told, I would love for that to be true. The problem is it's not true. I look inside of myself, I know that's not true. I look inside of humanity as a whole. And so and I'm, always, I'm always perplexed with this idea that at the core, which is, by the way, what we're being told right now, at our core, humanity is good. I go, based on what evidence? Historically, pick up a history book. Corporately, look around. Individually, nope. <laughs> I know I'm the authority on that. I'm like, nope. Based on what? And I think we want that to be true, but we have this sinking like feeling that, that the latter is true, that we're not good at our core. To which the scriptures say, you're right. That's one. The other reason why I think it's not popular to talk about being spiritually dead is that 
because I think that in our culture right now, secularism, one of the things it says that to experience to experience true freedom, you have to throw off the shackles of religion. To experience true freedom, right, you have to throw off the shackles of religion. God's trying to, he's trying to constrain you. Talking about the spiritually dead, he's trying to constrain you. By the way, that's the first lie, is it not? We just spent tons of weeks in Genesis. That's the first lie. Told thousands of years ago, still the lie being told today. And a lot of me thinks just Satan's like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It still works. You want to experience true freedom. You throw off the shackles of religion. And so this interesting thing is then, then we think that freedom is getting to do whatever we want to do. But here's the problem with that. Is that all of us in this room have done what we, we, we just did something to do it in the name of freedom. We did it because I could do it. No one's going to tell me what to do. And in the end, we ended up being more in slavery than we were before. It's quite possible that our freedom would enslave us if what we think is freedom is that freedom is getting to do whatever we want to do. And so then actually Ephesians 2 comes along and says that even those who are doing whatever they, who think that they're doing whatever they want to do, even they're following a script. This is what Ephesians 2 says. It's interesting in our culture right now, people think that they, when they throw off the shackles of religion, they're experiencing true freedom because they get to do whatever they want to do. And actually Ephesians 2 would say, that's not even true of you. Because you're following a script. And he says here, what, listen what he says the script is. You're following the course of this world or the idea is the, the age, the age you're following what the world is telling you. You're following the, the prince of the air. The prince of the power of the air, by the way, is referring to Satan. And he says, and then you're also living by the passions of your flesh. You're carrying out the desires of your body and your mind. In other words, you think you're living in freedom, but you're not actually. You're living according to a script. And the script is being written by what the world says. The script is being written by what Satan says. And the script is being written by what you say. I love what, what, what Leah was talking about, this idea. We're going to proclaim this to be true even if we don't feel it. And this idea that, that feelings become our reality. You're following a script. It's interesting because one of the things actually right now when people say you want to live authentically, you want to live the authentic life, you have got to follow your passions. You have to follow your desires. Which to, I would say at some level, I'd go, well, that would be great if, 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 if our passions and desires were good things. But some of you are living, in my, and I've got a history of this too, living passionately destructive lives. It's actually the passions that are destroying you, the desires that are destroying and entrapping you. And, and what he's saying here is like, you're following a script too. And he goes, and for, he's writing to Christians, he goes, and for the use, those of you that are in Christ, you've, you were this way. You've you got these external factors, the world and Satan. 
You have these internal factors, your desires, your passions, and they are working together in disobedience to God. Yeah, this is encouraging. You know, I think that, the thing about when, when Paul talks about it in Romans 7, have you ever wondered why it's so hard to, like, do the right thing? Like, I, I really want to do it. I was like, you know what? I'm going to be super forgiving. And then I just lit right into them. I was like, I'm going to be generous. But then I kept all the money for myself. Do you ever wonder, like, why, like, why that's such a struggle? Paul in, in Romans 7, Paul who wrote, the, who wrote Ephesians also wrote Romans 7. He says, I got this problem. I'm going to paraphrase now, by the way. He goes, I want to do the right thing. I set out to do the right thing. I wake up in the morning, I'm going to do the right thing. And I go out and I do the wrong thing. I do the very thing I didn't want to do. And I also wake up in the morning and go, and I'm going to avoid the wrong thing. I'm going to totally avoid the wrong thing. This morning's going to be different. I'm going to do the thing that I should do and not do the thing I shouldn't do. So the problem is I, I, I walk out the door. And when I walk out the door, I do the very thing I didn't want to do and don't do the thing that I wanted to do. And this is the experience that he has, the experience that you have, the experience that I have. And what he's saying is that we have these external forces and these internal forces that are leading us astray. Just close in prayer. No. Right? Verse 4. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and the kindness and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And I love how what Paul does here, he paints this horrible picture. By the way, he does this same thing in Romans chapter 7. I do the thing that I want to do, but I don't do it. And the thing I didn't want to do, I end up doing it. And he says, who's going to save me from this wretched body of death and decay? (sighs) Thank you, Jesus. And I love here in Ephesians, he does the same thing. Do you remember how you used to be? But God. But God. And I go, "If, if, if if I could sum up the Bible... It would be humanity is in the pit of despair and, 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 and desperation. But God. Humanity is going to consume itself. But God. You think about how many of the stories of the Bible go like this, right? The Israelites were enslaved by the Egyptians. But God sends Moses. 
And even when the Egyptians were chasing after them, the whole army was chasing after them, they were had their backs, backs to the Red Sea, getting ready to, the Egyptians were getting ready to, to, to descend upon, to kill the Israelites. But God separates the sea. Goliath is mocking the people of Israel. Send out your best warrior and nobody wants to go but God. You see what what God does in our places of despair is what then he inserts himself into the story. But God, and that's true not only of Moses, that's true not only of David, but that's true of me and that's true of you. In your places of despair, we get the same verses. But God does something. But God, right, God inserts himself into the story. And this is what he says is that, but God being rich in mercy, so he's got the mercy, he's rich in mercy because of his great love. In other words, his, his grace is motivated by and, and, and is pushed forward by his mercy and by his love. He doesn't want to give you the wrath. That's not his desire. He's, he's rich in mercy and he's got a great love for you. Now, this is interesting because a lot of times now in our, in our even our, especially our Christian worlds, right, is what we're told is that God loves you so much. God loves you so much. Do you know how much God loves you? He loves you so much that he would send his son to die for you. I mean, God thought about heaven and thought about you not being there. And he's like, we can't have that. And so he sent his son to die for you. So because he thought about eternity without you and was like, I don't like that idea. And so go, go get him. And, and you go, well, is that true? You go, well, yeah. But the problem is it leaves us in this place. At least it leaves me in this place where, where, where this idea is that, is that I, I, am, I am the affection so much that God could not live without me. Which I go, that is categorically false. In other words, what it does is it, it bases God's love and the goodness and the quality of our character and does not base his love and the goodness and the quality of his character. I mean, you think about what he just said. He goes, you guys were a mess. You were a train wreck. It's not because God looked down and said, those are some people that I like. Look at what they're doing. Pretty good. I was going to destroy them, but then I decided no because, you know, they were worshiping me and I thought I should do something. He's like, no, no, you were following your desires. You were sons of disobedience, the children of wrath. Following the age of the world. But because of God's character, his mercy and his love, he came to you and saved you by grace. By the way, this is one of the great truths of the Christian faith. One of the great truths of the Christian faith that makes Christianity different than all of the other religions is that we are not saved by our works. And this interesting thing that he says here, right? Because what he says, he says, he says, you used to be like this, But by the grace of God, you're different now. So over your past, the grace of God is over your past. You used to be this way, but you're not this way anymore. The grace of God now is over your present, right? He's called you to him. He loves you. He's rich. He's in mercy. 
He saved you by grace. You were saved by grace. You were raised up by grace. You were seated by grace. But even more than that, in verse 7, then it says, and then the coming age, and the coming age to come, like the grace is there too. So Paul is saying, actually, it's not grace that just starts the journey, but it's actually grace that's over your whole journey. It's grace that started the journey, and it's grace that's going to see you through the journey. Verse 8, then, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love what he does here. This idea of repetition. You're not saved by grace. I say you're not saved by by works. You're saved by by grace. You're saved by grace and grace alone. Did you miss it? Then he comes back. Verse 8. You're saved by grace. It's not by your works. There's nothing that you can do that would earn you approval before God. It's not what you have done, but it's what Christ has done for you on the cross. And that's true not only of your past. That is not true just only of your present, but that will be true eternally so for those that are in Christ of your future. You see, what happens, I think, over time for the Christian is we come to faith by grace, but then we slowly, that slowly gets eroded And we start moving into a works-based salvation. But God, have you seen what I've done? God, have you seen how many sacrifices I've made? God, have you seen how hard I've been working for you? And one of the things I think this is why we think this way is because we believe in in a transactional relationship with God and not a covenant relationship with God. The the transactional relationship with God says, I do this, and you do this, right? I give you praise, you give me blessings. It's a transaction. I give you what you want, praise, honor, glory, Sunday mornings, tithe, and then you give me what I want, the desires of my heart. That's how this relationship works. But the problem is, is that a relationship with God and through Jesus is not one based on that transactions, but one based in covenant relationship. God says, I'm committed to you. But God, we're a train wreck. Yeah, I get that. But I'm committed to you. It's out of my love, out of my mercy. If it was out of your goodness, Jesus would have never come. It's only because of out of the goodness, the mercy, and the grace, and the love of God that Jesus entered the world. I think another reason why we have a hard time with this is because in our American culture, what do we believe? What is our, our values? You work hard, you get stuff. Work hard, make enough sacrifices, you get the things of your heart. Ah, oh, I'd like that car. Well, that's fine. It's a nice car. Great car. Go out, you work hard, make sacrifices, you get the car. 
You work hard, make sacrifices, get the girl, right? Work hard, make sacrifices, get the house. American way. And I go, maybe that's what drives the American, the American economy. That is not what drives God's economy. There is nothing that we do, none of our works that earns us anything. And by the way, if we earned it, it would not be grace. Nobody looks at their paycheck and thinks that the company has, has, has given them grace that week. No, what do you think? I earned this. Worked hard, put in hours. I earned a little bit more than this, but I will take this. You don't receive it as a grace. Why? Because you worked for it. There's nothing you can do that will earn you the approval of God. The problem is, is you may know that with your head, but you don't believe that with your soul. Think about this. Think about your last week. Just for a second. Think about the things you did. The things that maybe you're not proud of. Maybe the things you said. Maybe the people you talked to. Maybe how you talked to them. The websites you went to. The way you spent your money. Think about all that. Do you know that if you are in Christ, you are no more or less acceptable before the Father than you were this time last week? Now, this is one of the things, like, in your head you go, like, like, like I just, I know that that's true, but I just, in my, my soul, I, I, I don't, I don't feel it. I feel less acceptable before God. I go, I know. I get it. I, I, I visit those places. But the problem is, is in those places, what happens is I let go of grace and I pick up works. On the flip side of that, you could leave here this morning and you could go out into your week and you could, you could read the Bible for eight hours a day, pray another eight hours a day. That's 16 hours a day and just a, a, a Bible reading and prayer. You could fall asleep worshiping him. You could be gracious and kind and gentle and faithful to all of your relationships and the way that you spend your money and the way that you work. You could, be, you could, you could just nail it. And you could come back here next week and in Christ, you would be no more or less acceptable than you are in this moment. It's hard to believe, isn't it? That's why we sing about amazing grace. <laughs> it's so amazing. And so, why would God do this? Why would he do it this way? Well, he tells us right in his word why he'll do it that way. He says, why, you know, in the verses we just read prior to the eight and following, 
was that it displays his, and it displays the richness of his mercy and his love for us. That's what it told us. It's like, and it displays. This is a display of his of his mercy and his love. Why would God give us grace in this way? Because when he does, you know what it puts on display for the universe, for everyone to see? His mercy, his love, his goodness. But the other reason why he tells us that he he does it this way is because he knows that if, if he did it the other way, that we would boast. That's what it says there, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that, and by the way, so that is a purpose. Here's the reason why. So that, so that no one may boast. No one may boast. I'm giving you grace so that you may not boast. You think about this. When God was processing how to save us, I don't think he was processing it like learning and things like that, but just for, for our sake this morning, as if he were. He thinks, I could let them be partly responsible. Maybe they could earn some of it. But the problem is, is I know that if they earn any of it, they're going to be prideful about it. And then that's sin. So even in their saving would encourage them to, to, to embrace more of sin. So I'm just going to give them grace to combat their pride. Maybe just 1%. No, because if it's just 1%, they would still boast. They, they would find that 1% and they would think that their 1% is better than anybody else's 1% and they would still, they would boast. And so to come against their pride and their arrogance, it's going to give them grace. Not by their works. Not because they earned it. Not because they deserved it. They're not entitled to it but only by my grace and my grace alone. And it's an interesting thing that God uses grace to combat pride all of the time. And it's interesting that it's pride that keeps people from coming to God's grace. I talk to people like about Jesus. Like, I just want to become better first. Like I know, I I know, I know. I want to become a Christian. I just, I need to, I need to, I need to clean up some things first. And really, what that's saying is like that's like a that's a pride thing. So I want to receive the grace of God, but I've got too much pride in order to do it. And I go, well, here's the thing: it's actually the grace of God that destroys the pride. And so I find this with with, with people that that are are not Christians. They don't want to receive the grace of God because they're too proud. But I find this with Christians as well. I want to feel like I earn my keep. I want to feel like, like somehow like I worked really hard and God's happier with me because I've worked hard. And yet it's pride that keeps me from his grace. In Chaplin, in his book, he actually says that really what legalism does is that legalism will only ever end in either pride or despair. Pride, we do it well. Despair, we don't do it well at all. And we bounce back and forth between the two, sometimes the same day, the same hour. 
And so God's grace comes in to destroy the pride. Salvation is by grace alone flowing out of the generosity of God's love and mercy, flowing out of the the, the generosity of God's love and mercy. So salvation is by grace alone flowing out of the generosity of God's love and his mercy. But then I'm perplexed. Because if that's true, well, then why do I look around and see Christians that are being cultivated in pride, entitlement, and bitterness? I think of, this is why grace is so important, not just in salvation in the moment, but salvation, the journey, is because when we let go of grace, we become arrogant, we become bitter and we become entitled you're gone to god in prayer i'm like god you 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 owe me maybe you weren't that bold but the idea is like god you owe me have you you seen what i've been doing down here for you i mean there's people that are setting this place on fire but i'm not i'm trying to put out fires god and it seems like you owe me you go what happened we let go of grace and we picked up bitterness that's our entitlement and bitterness I find increasingly so as our as our culture moves towards secularism, as we try to 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 grow in faith and Christianity, what I find growing in people as a whole is pride and arrogance and bitterness towards the world. Like what happened there? You go, we let go of the grace of God. And whenever and what this this is why he says You used to be like that, like the rest of mankind. But when you let go of grace, what happens is it becomes those people. Have you seen what they're doing? Have you seen what's been happening? God's like, well, you forgot about the grace, have you, huh? And now my grace, I give you my grace, and now it's being cultivated you is, is arrogance and bitterness and entitlement, I'm going to submit that something's wrong. Salvation is by grace alone. Your right standing before God is by grace alone. Your works, although we, we will talk about this, don't worry, because I know the thing is like, well, what about, like, so works don't matter. Works don't matter. No, works, works do matter. But the motivation of good works is not for the God, like God's approval. And when we let go down of grace, when we pick up works, what we're saying is the way that we get approval from God is we do good things. Now, that might help with, like, behavior modification, right, with your kids. Don't lie. Don't lie. Don't steal. Because when you do, baby Jesus cries, right? I mean, it's like, <laughs> don't make baby Jesus cry. But in that, what's happening is we're destroying grace, the very the generosity of God. And so one of the things we're going to be talking about is then, then we need a different motivator for good works. 
if it's not going to be for God's approval, then we need a different motivator, to which I would agree we do need a different motivator. And so my question to you for this week to think about is this idea, how have you let, how have you maybe let go of grace? You've picked up works. And because of that, what you have found being cultivated in you is an arrogance, a bitterness, and or an entitlement. God, you owe me. God, why don't you? Those people out there. And if that is what is happening inside of you, I would submit to you that maybe you have let go of the grace of God and you have picked up works because Paul's like, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. You too were once like that. It's grace actually that frees us. It frees us from a sin and frees us to live the life that we are called to live. I'm excited about spending some time in marinating in this idea of grace. But let us pray. God, we thank you for your grace. God, and I just, I just know that in this room, just even in me, is that it's so hard to, to come away from, to, to embrace an, an idea where our, our works are not what earn us approval before you. Because if that was even true, we'd be in a miserable place anyways. But it's not based in our works, Jesus, but it's based in your works and what you did for us on the cross. And so we thank you. May your grace not cultivate in us arrogance. May it not cultivate in us bitterness. May it not cultivate in us entitlement. May your grace increase our love. May your grace increase our our generosity. God, may we we reflect you, not in a way to earn your approval, but as 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 a works that flows out of identity of who we are in you. And so we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that we can't earn it. Because if we could earn it, then we could easily unearn it. We thank you that you're not a fickle God. And we thank you that your love for us is based in your character and goodness and not in our own. We love you. We pray for these things in your name. Amen. Amen.